Welcome to This Academic Life, episode 55. This episode is sponsored by the Academic Life Faculty Development Workshops, a series of free in-person and online events that are designed for those already in or seeking to enter academic careers in STEM fields. The next workshop will be in person on July 23rd, 2023 in Albuquerque, New Mexico. If you're interested, please find the details of the workshop and the registration links in the show notes. Hi, my name is Kim Michelle Lewis. I am a professor of physics and associate dean of research. Hi, my name is Lucy Zhang. I am a professor of mechanical engineering. Hi, my name is Pani Anuel. I'm also a professor of mechanical engineering. Today, we are once again joined by Stephen Centuria, Professor Emeritus of Electrical Engineering from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He is one of the founders of the Academic Life Faculty Development Workshops. Welcome back, Steve. Happy to be here. Thank you. So this episode is our second one on the general topic of publishing. We've entitled them Wisdom from a former journal editor. Could you please remind our listeners about your experience as an editor? Uh, thank you, Panya. Happy to do that. I spent a total of 36 years on the faculty at MIT, and, and for half those years, I was an associate editor on one of two journals, the IEEE Transactions on Electron Devices and the combined ASME IEEE Journal of Microelectromechanical Systems. Along the way, of course, I had my own students, my own publication records, so I sat on both sides of the editorial side as a submitter of papers and also as one who was making decisions on publication. So we've already had several episodes by the Academic Life Workshops. How's this one different from the others? Well, this is the second of two on the whole issue of publication, and all this grew out of a article I wrote called How to Avoid the Reviewer's Acts. It is in the workshop, what we do is, unfortunately, I give a lecture about how to design scientific papers and then how to respond to peer reviews. Today, our topic is on peer review. And it's important that Every academic knows that peer-reviewed papers are important in quality journals. It's part of the case you make. You're right, Steve. Peer review seems to be a very essential part of academics. They appear in journals, and then they also happen in tenure and promotions. Yes, we run into peer review in academic life in, in multiple dimensions. The one that is career-determining is whether or not you get tenure. And that's a form of peer review, but in that case, it's more senior peers who provide letters of recommendation supporting your department's decision to promote. But peer review also happens when you submit a, an application for a grant to get research money. These are typically reviewed by experts. And the scientific community itself has a long tradition of relying on peer review to make sure that the journals publish work that passes a test of credibility, accuracy, competency. And the, the way it works is if you get a grant, fine, you have to do the work and then you have to get the work published so that it can be shared in the scientific community. And the scientific community 
has a habit, a process of requiring review as a way of assuring that things that get into the literature have been tested by review. So, in the sense of publication, this is more like a quality control before they can appear to the public. Yes, and for an academic, it all projects back into the promotion and tenure process. But in general, the point of a peer review is a form of quality control. You want to know that what's showing up in the literature can be believed, and. The reason it's important for promotion cases is that in a typical academic department, your closest colleagues may know very well what your teaching record is and how good you are with students and what a good contributor you are to the community at large, but they may not be able to understand the importance of the research component of your work. And the only way to find that out is to go ask people on the outside. And people on the outside, have to be able to say, yes, I saw this work, I know this work, I know it was published in a good journal, the journal was peer reviewed, I believe it all, yes, you should support this candidate for promotion. So the process of peer review figures both in getting published and also in the process of getting promoted. I see two potential problems. One is the time. It does take time for the feedback to happen, and then takes time for the revision to happen, and eventually be in a published form. My second problem with this is the biases. Peer review always come with biases. You, no matter you like it or not, and that comes naturally because we're human. So, as editors or associate editors, how do you deal with those two issues? Well, let's take them one at a time. Let's start with the issue of speed. I try to remind authors that reviewers are volunteers; they're not paid. They are taking time away from what they're doing in order to spend time on what you're doing, and that's a very significant service to the community as a whole. And I considered reviewer time as an editor to be a highly precious and valued resource. So I never ask reviewers to review too many papers within a calendar year, and I recognize that they were doing it voluntarily. And bugging them about the time it takes to get a review can be counterproductive. If you complain to someone too much about how long it takes to get a review, they get nasty and won't do the review. So you have to be a diplomat and a little bit of a nudge and a little bit of a thank you. To get people to do the reviews, but then they do them. The thing that takes the most time and uses the most resource is if you have to get a second review, and this depends on the nature of the reviewer comments that come back. Typically, papers require some form of adjustment or revision. Very rare do you get a publish as submitted, so the revision process can be slow. And what I hope is that we can avoid a second review. And so I wrote a paper called "How to Avoid the Reviewer's Acts," and there's a link to this paper in the notes. And the point is, how do you structure a paper to be well received by your reviewer, and then how do you respond once the review is in? So in the paper that you mentioned, "How to Avoid the Reviewer's Acts," 
you have a section on how to deal with the reviewer's comments. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. As I said, reviewers are volunteers. They're busy. And they may see something in a paper that bothers them. They may not always be clear about what bothers them, but something does. And so there are usually comments or criticisms. And when this happens, when you get back a paper from an editor and it says a mandatory revision required, some authors get rather upset and don't respond appropriately. So when you mentioned that they may not respond appropriately, what do you mean by that? Well, reviewers are trying to do a decent job. They don't have access to the full set of materials that the author has. So it's very often true that a reviewer is uneasy about some aspect of a paper and makes a critical note, but doesn't necessarily make it as clearly as an expert would if they spend a lot of time on it. But there's one message that I try to get out to authors as an editor, which is, if a reviewer has a criticism, there's a reason. It might be a good reason, or it might be a bad reason, but there is a reason. Do you often think in your opinion that their reason is usually clear? Well, unfortunately, no. Very often it's not clear. If the author wrote the paper following the prescription we spoke about in the last episode about writing in the order of decreasing believability, avoiding gambling words, expressing courtesy toward prior work rather than criticism, expressing courtesy towards prior work, even if you think it's wrong, and then looping back at the end of the paper to relate the new results to prior work, then you've done as well as you can. So what about the criticisms? A criticism could be cogent or unimportant, and you have to decide. It might be something small that you can easily fix, or a criticism might demonstrate that the reviewer, in fact, did not understand your paper. And that's a problem with the reviewer. And occasionally, a reviewer will make a comment that's spiteful or based on bias, which is something that Lucy brought up and I want to get back to. But however it shakes out, as an author, you have a responsibility to respond to each and every criticism. And if you do it well, you can often avoid a second review. And I wish the authors that I worked with over my 17 years of editorship did a better job of responding to reviewer comments. So what do you think is the best way for a writer, for an author to address this? First of all, treat every criticism as worthy of attention. And for goodness sake, don't pick a fight with the editor and don't pick a fight with the reviewer. Um, what I suggest when I send a paper back to an author is that they not only make appropriate revisions in response to the suggestions, but send a cover letter which says, this is how I responded to criticism number one. This is how I responded to criticism number two. Explain to the editor what you did and also provide a marked up copy so that the changes are evident to the editor. Now, if you've done a good job 
in doing this, and you say in one of your events, I think the reviewer is wrong about point number 13, but you've done a brilliant job in responding to all the other points, then the editor's likely to give you a pass and say, okay, reviewer was wrong about this. I'm satisfied that you've responded to everything and I can go ahead and say, I recommend publication. How does one avoid being asked for a second round of review? Well, it's just this question of thoroughness. If you really respond to the what the intended reviewer's criticism was, and sometimes it takes some thinking to figure out what was it that bothered the reviewer. Was it an equation? Was it a statement I made? Was it the order of topics in the paper? Was it inserting a few more words about a method? Whatever it is, if you've been diligent about doing it, the editor will definitely give you a pass into saying publish because the editor doesn't want to burn reviewer time unnecessarily. Reviewer time is a precious resource. And if you waste it, then you're only making your job harder as an editor to get work through the review process and into press. I think we earlier mentioned that there are potentially, from my point of view, there are two potential problems. One is uh, time, and then the other one is uh, bias. Do you think those are the main problems, or there are others? Oh, I think bias is too polite. There's actually competition. Uh, who is the best reviewer of a paper? Somebody who's working in that exact same field that person is likely to be a competitor of yours as an author. What you hope is that the review will be done objectively with care and with the sense that if the reviewer slams your work, you and later slam their work. Sort of, you want to avoid that kind of battle through the review process. But biases can arise. There can be instances in which an author has a particular style of interpretation based on some model. And the reviewer has a different model that the reviewer likes better. That can create a technical problem of compatibility of the person doing the reviews thinking with the person doing the authoring thinking. They may not match up. And it's up to the editor to figure out how to manage situations like that. There can also be situations in which there's personal unpleasantness. That can happen, unfortunately. I did witness it, not very often, but where people took advantage of the review process to say some pretty nasty things about an author. I didn't like that. I tried to uh, mitigate it as best I could. Do you have any suggestions on how to deal with some of the problems that you mentioned? Well, on the issue of slowness, what I suggest is get work out in conferences because conferences are typically faster than archival journals. They're often reviewed more quickly and the time between submission and presentation can be rather short. And then follow that work up with a properly constructed journal article for peer review because as an academic, that's the case you ultimately have to build. It's very rare for a tenure case, for example, to be decided successfully just on the basis of conference papers because conference papers are hard to evaluate. 
but papers that have been through a rigorous peer review process are easy to evaluate. The notion that your colleagues know how well you teach is good, but they also want to know how well you do research. And getting your work out this way is very helpful. What about suggesting reviewers? Well, this was something that some journals actually do ask you to suggest reviewers. I personally dislike that practice. And I dislike it for a very specific reason. It's called what I call the buddy system, where you have cronies of yours who you recommend review your papers. And your cronies have lists that include you. So you end up reviewing each other's papers in a gentle and friendly way. And that undercuts the integrity of the review process. Now, there are some cases where a field is so specialized that suggesting reviewers really might be essential. But in the areas that I worked as an editor, I didn't have that problem. I picked my own reviewers independent of any suggestions from authors because I knew the people who were doing my reviews and I trusted their integrity and didn't have any need to get suggestions. Very often, I use the reference list as a way of getting suggestions of reviewers because those are the people who are likely to know something about the field. But this business of of reviewing for cronies is a problem. In fact, there was an amazing case of a guy who set up fake names on the internet and then gave those fake names to the journal, suggesting do these contact these people for reviews. And he was in effect reviewing his own papers and of course, recommending publication. And that's the ultimate nonsense of what can happen with the review process if it becomes corrupted. That's why I don't like the idea of suggested reviewers unless it's really essential. That's on the onus of the editor as well, right? Because as an author, I always dread about putting names in because I always have to think, well, I certainly don't want to name my main competitors because that that would risk my paper being rejected without going through a fair review. I also worry that if I pick someone who's close to me, that's on my part. That's my fault. I shouldn't do that. I'm also associate editor for a couple of journals. We require the authors to provide the names. and But when we assign the assignment, there's always a big sign and said, please vet these suggested reviewers. And I think as an editor, it's also their job to make sure that these are not their friends or something that's going to generate potentially unfair reviews. You're right. But you, you mentioned something, which is that you think a competitor would unfairly reject a paper. I didn't run into that very much, I will tell you. Even people who were actively competing with each other tended to give substantive rather than emotional reviews because the system depends on everyone contributing that way. If you start getting into hissy fights, over who gets to publish or who doesn't get to publish, the whole system crumbles. And I think people understand that. So I would be less afraid of having a competitor review my work than having a buddy review my work because buddies don't satisfy the conflict of interest 
that I would expect it. I agree with you, though, it's the editor's job to sort that out. Yeah, so I wanted actually to comment about Lucy's comment on the role of the editor too. One of our papers that we submitted a couple of years ago went through very quick review process. And one of the reviewers sent a list of 10 papers or something that asked us to be referenced. But it was very easy to figure out that was his own paper. And my student, who was the first author on that, he recognized that that person was a PhD candidate. And the papers that he asked us, they were not even related. Yes, they were in the field of the mechanical engineering, but not even relevant. And journal that we submitted had an awesome policy that the reviewers that should not recommend papers of your own to be cited. So we reached out to the editor and they said, you don't need to or satisfy those requirements. But I think the editor should not have even assigned this paper to a person that did not have any contribution to the technical part rather than trying to increase his own citation. But I also think that maybe those journals that they are in hurry to increase their speed, maybe the editors, they are in a lot of pressure, find whoever that it's available to do the review. So what are your thoughts on that? And have you faced any issues similar to that. First of all, Panya, congratulations. You did exactly the right thing. You pushed back on an inappropriate comment by a reviewer. That's exactly what you should do. And in order to validate your claim, I trust you also replied to other reviewer comments in a constructive way. And if you do that, the editor will believe you because you're doing the right thing and you're doing it correctly. Now, the building of citations is, of course, a nasty game, especially since, unfortunately, many departments try to use some form of impact factor as a judgment. I dislike that. I think an impact can be measured other than by citation numbers. I don't think citation numbers are necessarily a validation of the importance of a piece of work. But what you did was just fine. And... The editor did fine, but there's here's the hook. The editor builds a list of trusted reviewers over time. Over a period of, well, look, I've said it for 17 years. Over a period of time, I figured out who are the reviewers I could trust. And I had a big stable. I had about 50 people that I used as reviewers over a period of time. And I would get a paper and I'd think through my list and find at least one person from that list. And then I might pick a new reviewer and take a chance on somebody new. And if somebody new did the kind of trick you described, that person would be off the list for future reviews. Lucy, you're an editor. Would you agree that that's what you do? Absolutely. Actually, I believe one of the ones that I'm serving on right now, we actually give score for each reviewer out of 100. We would rate all the reviewers as they come in. And then over time, there, you can also check on average what that reviewer scores are. And if they're below 50, for example, that means all the feedbacks have been negative for that particular reviewer. We just don't use them. Even if they exist in our database, we don't use them. Well, that's interesting. Of course, what I was reviewing, this was quite a number of years ago, we didn't have online databases about reviewers. I kept my own notes 
and uh, had my own list. And I didn't share that list with other editors, even on the same journal. It's precious. I, it's a resource. And Lucy's laughing. Same. You do the same thing. We can actually secretly save a separate list for each editor. So, <laughs> okay, that's the way it works. But editors, like, look, they're volunteers too. You know, they're doing a service to the community. Reviewers are doing a service to the community. And authors benefit from going through the critical process of a review. I know of very few papers that have not been improved through the process of review and revision. So this is actually helping the authors as well, even though it may not look like that up front. I don't remember in any case that we didn't benefit from the peer review. The papers, they came out much, much, much stronger, much, much better. They were questions that we didn't even think about it. And then we learned through that process. And also through the discussion about selecting the reviewer or suggested reviewers, I never put too much thought on that. I just, I thought that the experts should review it. I didn't think that they are my competitions in, in that field or they are nice people or mean people. <laughs> so maybe I should have put more thought into it. But for me, what it was important, uh, it was their expertise because there is a section that you need to say why you are selecting them. I always tried not to have any conflict of interest with them, obviously. So the body system, I guess it was removed, but it, sometimes it might have hurt us. And we got, you know, a lot of <laughs> pages after pages of the of comments. And uh, But at the end, I think that we should all trust in the review process, the fairness of it. And most people that I know are doing a genuine service. There are some people here and there that they are trying to play games and you know benefit from it but i think that at the end most people they are trying to help each other at least that's been my experience well i'm glad that's been your experience that certainly was my experience as an editor i found all in all the review process was basically honest basically ethical and definitely helpful well that was very wonderful conversation. Thank you so much, Steve, for joining us again. It was a pleasure to have you on the show and hear about your insight and your experience about publishing. If you have any comments, thoughts, please write to us and let us know. If you attend the workshop in Albuquerque on July 23rd, 2023 in person, you will be able to participate in this discussion with many like-minded people. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. You can follow us on Facebook and listen to our latest episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon Music, or Google Podcasts. If you're interested in being a sponsor, then please contact us at sponsor at thisacademiclife.org. Join us next time for the good, the bad, and the ugly of this academic life.